0: Hey everybody, welcome to The Eurasian Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan. It's Saturday, August 8th, 88. 8, also 88 days until Election Day here in the States. And I want to thank you and welcome you to The Eurasian Americans. We're uploading one day behind today. Um, normally our episodes are Tuesday, Friday, and I thank you for your patience. Uh, this episode is really fun. I speak with Justine Abigail you founder and publisher of Living Hyphen Magazine, located or headquartered. In Toronto, Canada, and I want to share a couple exciting updates that we have uh, here at the Asian Americans. First of all, want to continue to thank you. We just passed last week our ten thousand listen mark, which is a super big milestone, and I'm so proud and so humbled of this achievement that we've been able to cross. Big thanks to all of our sixty five plus guests that we've had on the show, um, to all of you who are listening from all across the country in Indiana, in Ohio in New York and even places abroad. So thank you to every single person who's ever listened. And if you're listening to this now, know that I am so, so, so grateful for you. A couple other things. Uh, We have a brand new website. We have partnered with a company called Podpage and have uh, built a brand new website. Just head to dearasianamericans.com, which is under the justlikemedia.com family of web pages. Um, it should have our episodes. It should have a little bit more uh, in-depth information and all the social links. And so uh, check out the new website and let me know through the DM or however you can what you think about the site. And also you'll find a link to our brand new Patreon on the website. And you can directly access the Patreon at patreon.com slash Dear Americans. And so I'm humbly asking uh, if you're able to. Uh, Please support the show. Financially, there are some really cool perks that I'm going to be providing. Our minimum donation is $5 per month, and with that, you'll get access to a private group. We'll shout you out on the show, and there are some other higher levels uh, with fun things like uh, bonus episodes from me, getting a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look here at the Asian Americans and a glimpse into my life and and how I spend uh, the other hours of the day and the week. Here at Just Like Media, producing other fun shows, and even an opportunity for you to sponsor the show through a placement of a message. Whether you want to wish somebody in your life, congratulations, happy birthday, anniversary, or plug your company or project, uh, we'd be happy to partner with you on that. So, again, it's been a big week here for us. Uh, We passed a big milestone. We have a new website. Uh, We've opened up our Patreon. So, so grateful, so humbled. Uh, It's been about now five months and a week into this journey that I started back on March 2nd as a gift to my daughter. Uh, On a personal note, became an uncle this week. Uh, Shout out to my brother and sister-in-law, and they welcomed their first daughter. So uh, lovely, lovely niece was born, and she's healthy, and everybody's doing well. So it's been a big week, and so thank you for listening, and thank you for listening to uh, this bit of the uh, the podcast here before we get to our conversation with Justine, uh, you're going to get a lot of value out of listening to Justine, especially if you're on the fence and if you've been thinking about starting something, whether it's a magazine or a podcast or something to express what's in your heart, uh, we encourage you to do so. It's been really fun uh, to meet so many other creators in this space as we've gone down this path uh, called the Asian Americans together. And so thank you again. Check us out on the web. Check us out on Patreon. Celebrate with us. As we pass the 10,000 listen mark. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Justine Yu. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans, uh, wherever you are and whenever you may be listening to this. We wish you all the health and happiness in the world. Welcome to episode 66 on Friday, August uh, 7th, 2020. And very, very excited to share this conversation with a dear friend of mine from north of the border in perhaps safer, uh, grounds in, in Toronto. Um, and I think for a lot of us Americans, we have gone through 2020, um, you know, starting on a high note, right? Like we had, um, Aquafina killing it. And then we had, you know, Parasite that once were like, this is the year of the Asian Americans or at least Asians globally. And then, you know, COVID happens and, um, we get hated on and, and racism done. And, um, and, and while we think, you know, a little bit of that might be an American specific issue. And depending on where you're listening to us from, and the diversity of the immediate areas in which you you exist and go to school and or nobody's going to school, work and you know, your neighbors. Um, You know, I, I think we as even Asian Americans have this American bias that it is our unique experiences of being in the states that I think, inform and, and shape our worldviews. Um, however, um we are, and, and you know, we don't All of us use the hyphen or I think, you know, the hyphen between Asian and American um, has come and gone. And, you know, some people use it, some people don't. But however, um, the hyphen or just the gap between Asian and American also exists between very, very diverse group of people. And so. It's the duality of the cultures that doesn't actually add up to 100%. It's the addition of those beautiful two parts that make us uniquely who we are. And so my guest today is the founder and editor of a magazine and a movement and a creation and a creator of The Living Hyphen, um, all the way from, as the kids call it, The Six. Uh, welcome, Justine. You to the Asian Americans. Hi, Justine.
1: Hey, Jerry. Thank you for having me and for that introduction. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I'm glad we're able to connect over Zoom because we're not allowed in Canada, I think, um, or we're not. <laughs> no,
1: you're uh, not. Not yet.
0: Not yet. I, I saw this map recently of like, here's all the places your American passport doesn't get you into. And I was like, uh-oh, and you know, it was stupid. And the places that were allowed uh, were very few. Right. But like it had also like identified America as a place, which is duh, right? but visibly at least because it's such a large landmass, it yeah. made it seem like we were welcome in more places than we are. Um, but yeah, w- w- welcome to the show. Uh, love what you do. I think we connected on Instagram a few months ago mm-hmm. um, as we began, or at least at least I began my Dear Asian Americans journey into finding other like-minded, badass Asian Americans and Asians globally who want to explore this topic of you know, dual identity and biculturalism and not even biculturalism, but multiculturalism, where we sort of create this new third culture, uh, depending on where you are, when you came here, what you do, and then what's important to you. Um, share with us a little bit about Living Hyphen and what sort of motivated you to start this project three years ago.
1: Yeah, so Living Hyphen is a magazine that explores the experiences of what I've been calling hyphenated Canadians. Um, So that's anyone who calls Canada home, but who might have roots elsewhere. And it started as a magazine, but it, it has grown quite a bit in the last three years to really become this community of hyphenated Canadians, of people who are exploring and navigating this sort of in-between culture space. Um, and yeah, I started about three years ago. And ooh, lo- do you want the long or short story, we'll probably get to the long story of this. <laughs> but what prompted me, honestly, is that I'm Filipina-Canadian myself. Um, I was born in Manila, Philippines, and I moved to Toronto when I was four years old. And I don't know. I just feel like my whole life has been sort of this push and pull between these two places, these two cultures, two different peoples, I guess. And I am also a writer. I have been working as a freelance writer for a long time um, and noticed that a lot of my writing centered around um, my identity and this push and pull that I think about a lot or experience a lot. And so yeah, I, I decided to start my own publication um, exploring that in community because I grew up with a lot of different friends from a lot of different places around the world and wanted to explore this idea of the hyphen in community and not just on my own or not even just within the Filipino Canadian community because I feel like maybe something that you've discovered too uh, while starting this podcast, there's so many similarities between all of us, you know, in who do live in this sort of liminal space. So yeah, that's the very short version of it. (laughs) I I think
0: it's beautiful. I, you know, again, you know, some people use the hyphen, some people just use a space, but there's so much in that little Mm -hmm. tiny dash hyphen space that really in, in, you know uh, tries to at least we attempt to encapsu- encapsulate a lot all of our feelings and our experiences whether they be you mm-hmm. know filipina canadian or korean american or mm-hmm. you know um you know with living hyphen you not only explore asian issues but just across right. the board of you know anything that lives um, in between or in amidst two different cultures um share with us a little bit more about the world you moved to uh, when you said you moved from the philippines to toronto when you were four um, most people know generally um, that Toronto is a very diverse place.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: but as we know, uh, by having lived in large cities, um, diverse across the board as a metric may not always mean that every neighborhood is diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, what What sort of the neighborhood did you first move to at four years old? And tell us a little bit more about your childhood growing up in Canada.
1: Yeah. So like I mentioned, I moved here when I was four. Um, my mom was the first one to... Well, that's not true. My aunt was the first one to move here. And she kind of laid the groundwork for the rest of our family uh, to move and migrate to Canada. So my mom was the first within my immediate family. And then she kind of settled, um, you know, found a job, found an apartment, all of these things really laid the groundwork for my family. And then my dad and I moved together uh, when I was four. And I'm I consider myself very lucky again i live in toronto it is very diverse and i did happen to live in a very multicultural city i first moved to um i don't know if it's considered a suburb still or if it's a city in its own right but a suburb out right outside of toronto called scarborough which is very 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 diverse a lot of folks from the philippines from the caribbean from south asia just all over the place um and so for the first maybe four years, I grew up there afterwards, moved to another suburb called Markham, which I don't know if you have any Canadian listeners, but it's pretty well known to be very, very Asian. Um, mm. We have what I believe is the largest Asian mall. It's called Pacific Mall, uh, largest Asian mall in the Canada or North America? You're going to have to fact check me on that. But (laughs) in any case, very diverse um, community that I grew up in. And like I mentioned, a lot of my friends who I grew up with um, were honestly like from all over the place, Um, from my best friends are from Vietnam, from China, from um, primarily those two places, but a lot of classmates from all over the world. So, yeah, I would actually say that... Um, the quote unquote minority was the majority in a lot of the communities that I grew up in. So, um, very lucky in that sense.
0: I think it's a theme that I see in your life, uh, obviously starting with your early childhood experience into what you're doing now, which is to recognize that, you know, only together will the minority voices, which is a, a completely fabricated relative yeah. term, right? Um, there's no majority race in the world. Asians technically would be the plurality if we wanted to go down that argument, but right. nobody's the majority, right. It's only majority depending on what the denominator is. Right. Right. And so, um, I, I, always personally find, um, Asians and you said there's, you know, Caribbeans and, um, uh, Tyler Hampong, who we had on the show, Canadian Chinese actor, like his dad was from the Caribbean too. Right. And it was just like, right. why do all these people from warm ass countries move into Toronto of all places? Cause it's, you know, cold as hell. And like, <laughs> it, even just, you know, that, getting used to a new environment, um, you know, from from a, you know, warmth and just uh, weather perspective, I think it's very different. But I also do think that going through those similar experiences together, you know, including weather and including, you know, uh, new language and a new culture is really what brings people together. Mm -hmm. um, And in an area where perhaps, um, you know, like in la there's enough korean americans and enough chinese americans where people can form their own sub 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 communities right like mm-hmm. where you don't need to band together um, but in most of america and most of canada i presume you know you really have to um you know stick together as asian americans to form the largest coalition that you can um, not only politically but also culturally and socially um, and then to just let's put everything out on the table and say like, Hey, we have enough shared experiences. We're generally fighting for the same thing. And so why are we continuing to, um, the more we divide ourselves, the Mm -hmm. more we subdivide ourselves, um, the weaker we get. Right. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I find, you know, that theme in your storytelling truly fascinating because I think it's, you know, part of, um, my story and part of some other folks story that perhaps sometimes doesn't come out as much. Right. Because, you know, it, when I, t- you know, for, for a lot of us, it's like you're Filipina, I'm Korean, like that's sort of the, our, you know, identity that we lead with first because that's where language and food and culture and family seems to be rooted.
1: Right. Um,
0: but you know, being immigrants in a new country, I think that's quite important. Um, and and so, talk to me about your your childhood. You grew up in a very diverse area. You know, it didn't it doesn't seem like you felt othered a lot. Um, what were some of the early and growing in your adolescent role models and things that you aspired to be and to do growing up in a very multicultural and mm-hmm. supportive environment.
1: You know, it's funny when you put it that way and I've been thinking about this a lot because I don't again, I grew up with a lot of friends from different cultures, very diverse community. And you mentioned I did I feel I did I feel othered? And when I think about it from that perspective, in terms of like the interpersonal friendships that I had, maybe not, but then I think about the grander, I don't know, institutions, media that I was surrounded by. Yeah. And that was that was still predominantly white, you know? And so I often wonder like, why did I feel this push and pull when I grew up with so many people who were from these different cultures? But then, yeah, when I, I really think about it, I, I realized that it is the grander institutions that we are surrounded with, you know, on TV, in movies and radio, everything, all media, even my textbooks, you know, things I grew up learning. It was all predominantly white European history and whatnot. And so I think that otherness, that feeling of being other was still definitely there. And, I think I ran up against that a lot maybe with my parents and how I don't know how I was raised or how they wanted me to be raised you know there was yeah I don't know you watch tv and you see all of these white girls going for their sleepovers and um, you know, having parties and all of these different things that feel like such a normal, quote-unquote normal experience, child experience or teenage experience, whatever stage, but I wasn't allowed to do so many of those things, you know? Like my parents had a hard and fast rule, you're not allowed to sleep over. You can have we could have the sleepover. We would host the sleepovers. Yes. <laughs> you know it, but I was never allowed to go to anybody else's house to sleep over you know, to
0: control the environment, right? <laughs>
1: exactly. <Yeah.
0: laughs>
1: and I just, I was like, why everyone else is allowed to do this. And I just see it in all the movies. It's like a normal experience that I'm not allowed to have. And so <laughs> that's one very small example, but I guess from a values perspective or cultural practice perspective, I was still othered, even though Mm. I had all of these diverse people around me. So those bigger cultural influences still really, um, really played a big part in, in my experience. Um, I don't even remember what your original question was anymore. Who
0: who are your role models, right? What were you influenced by? Oh my gosh. In America, you're you're right. And then, you know, a lot of us don't know how media how mainstream media translates in, in different countries because mm-hmm. we're so siloed here all American understanding, but you know, plenty of Asian Americans grow up with, you know, either an absence of, or really just terrible representations of us right? in, in TV and in print and, you know, movies. Um, and yeah. then, so in, in light of that, like, who did you look up to? Like, what did you, who did you think you could become back then?
1: I've never thought about this question. Is that strange? I don't know. I mean, I'll tell you I mean, certainly I'll tell you that I didn't have any Asian role models. Of course, you know, standard response, my parents are my, you know, my mom and my dad, of course, laid a lot of that groundwork for me. But from a bigger cultural societal perspective, I don't even know if I can't really name many Asian Canadians that were at the forefront there was probably one guy who hosted um, like the, the children's network here in Canada and he was Filipino Canadian. I wouldn't say I necessarily looked up to this person, but he was the only visible um, person who looked like me and maybe yellow ranger. Um, But other than that, (laughs) like, I really can't name anyone right now. Um, Always yellow ranger. Always yellow ranger. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I, I wish I had
0: an answer. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, that it, sad? It, it, it's part of, no, it's not sad. It, it's part of the process, but now you're, you know, you're, you're, now trying to do and, and be the, you know, yeah. at least a visible role model through the work that you do and, and the content that you create. So perhaps that a little Justine somewhere can say, Hey, mm-hmm. you know, I can make a magazine one day. Right. Because yeah. Big Sis is doing it. Um,
1: yeah.
0: When's the first memory of you, when did you know that you loved writing? so much so that you wanted to do it more and more?
1: Um, I think in high school, I was always a big journaler. Um, I was always writing um, in my journal. And I think it was like my senior year of high school where I, or sorry, um, grade 11, where I started writing for the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Um, Really enjoyed that and decided to pursue it even more and became the editor of our high school newspaper um, in grade 12 and senior year. And so I think from there, that's where everything kind of started. I happened to attend this journalism workshop or conference for high school students and was just really inspired by that. I was so interested in just investigative reporting. I've always been really interested in politics. i you know, after uh, prerequisites for maths and sciences were no longer required, uh, I immediately stopped taking all of those and just took a lot of the humanities, a lot of poli sci, and things like that. And yeah, I've just been interested in politics, and writing was my way or my gateway into that world. Hmm. Um, and I think that's where that's where it all started. That's
0: very cool. Um, and, and shout outs to you. You you excelled academically. Um, we'll we we'll publicly shout you out here, and then you're a magna cum laude graduate, and you <laughs> served on the editorial boards oh of gosh. a lot of different publications. Which, which I think is important because even at that, you know, mm. even during that part of your life, you know, it's we always talk about content, right? Especially when it comes to creating something like, you know, whether it's a podcast or a magazine or whatever. Uh, but what we always miss, I think, is who's doing it and what context are they writing from, mm-hmm. right? right? Because especially academic papers have such biases that we all understand that, like, we talk about history books all the time. Who writes history books, right? Like, people who want you to remember history a very specific way that advances their agenda. Mm -hmm. Correct. So, you know, when people who look like me and you who aren't born here, who have, you know, voices of our own, get into those editorial rooms and get into those review processes where, you know, we might be able to help craft or encourage a story that otherwise wouldn't have been told, right. and perhaps even more important to give pause to stories mm-hmm. that would have been published without much thought, you know, per not our presence being there. Right. Um, I, I think that's fascinating, right? Like, you started a magazine, I started a podcast, obviously, because we saw a lack of representation. So it's like, well, hell, if you're not going to do it, then I might as well do it, right? Yeah. And, and, and none of us are saying we're the, you know, we're the holy grail, but we need 30 magazines and 30 more podcasts to really even make a dent in the things that we are trying to do. Right. And, and so I, I think, you know, um, props to your your tribe, your family, and, and everybody else that helped you sort of see that and to pursue those things. Um, and and writing, um, I think, is the critical element to self-expression that nobody can really stop you, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, in, in podcast world, we always talk about like, oh, you know, now, finally, nobody can stop you from, you know, speaking into a microphone. There's no bear to entry. And, you know, same right. thing. We had the same conversation with YouTube 10 years ago. But right. somebody right. writing in your own journal for the entire history of time, mm-hmm. like that was the first form of content creation, right? Doesn't matter if you had an audience of one or zero, it was still, um, that catharsis and that like process of expressing what you've gone through, which I think is is super fascinating. Um, and, and so right after you graduated from college, um, you, you spent quite a bit of time at Operation Groundswell doing um, communications and marketing stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit more about what you did, not only functionally from that perspective, but the content and the context in which that organization was so important to you that you actually, you know, helped enjoyed doing stuff for such an organization?
1: Yeah. So just to give some context on that, um, like I mentioned, I've always been interested in journalism and politics. And so I studied poli-sci and sociology in university um, with the idea that I would go into journalism after. I had spoken to a journalist in that conference that I was telling you about in high school. Mm -hmm. And they told me, you know, before, if you want to go to J school, you can go to J school, but it might be more useful for you to get some background information on the topic or the subjects that you actually want to write about, which is why I went to political science. And I, during my university, I happened to have an internship with another organization called Journalists for Human Rights. And it was a social media internship uh, back in 2009, when I don't think anyone was really using social media from a business or an organizational perspective. I still don't know how I got that internship, probably because I was just 19 or 18 at the time. And they're like, a young person, she must know what's going on. Um, but I, it was with a nonprofit organization. And I thought it was my in into the media world, which in some ways it was, but it was also my in to the nonprofit sector in the social impact space, which I had never considered before. Um, Not to further stereotype our Asian families, but that was never really a viable uh, career to pursue. What is nonprofit? It has non-profit in it. Definitely do not want to (laughs) go there. (laughs) But um, it was my first brush with the social impact space. I really, really loved it. And I was working a communications position where I was still Using my writing skills, I was still actively writing, um, whether it was through social media, through blog posts, through different communications. Um, and I really, really loved it. And that was my entry into the nonprofit sector, which is what led me to this organization called Operation Groundswell. And just as a quick overview, Operation Groundswell is another nonprofit, like I mentioned, uh, that uh, uh, facilitates experiential education programs around the world with a focus on different social justice issues. So basically, um, we would have groups of typically youth between, I'd say, like ages of 18 to 30, go to these different countries to learn about a particular issue, let's say women's rights. And we would meet with different nonprofits and Other advocacy organizations and local communities who might be doing work around that particular issue to learn about it from their perspective. Mm. Oftentimes, here in the West, I feel like there is an entitlement and an arrogance when we go into these quote unquote developing countries and we assume that we know what these people and these communities need. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is that we have no idea, we don't live there, you know, we have no context. So the whole premise of this organization was an educational program to learn from these activists, these organizers, these change makers who were on the ground and actually Day in and day out working on these issues, and so I was the marketing communications director for this org for many years, for about six and a half years. And I, again, it integrated so many of my interests, you know, with politics, with social justice, with writing as well. A large part of my role was was writing. Marketing is, in some ways, I mean, depends on how you want to look at it. It is um. A, it involves so much writing. You know, I, I use so many of the tools on digital um, and in newsletters and things like that um, to educate people on not just you should go on this trip with this organization, but also on these issues of exactly what I just told you, you know, that we don't always know what's best for a local community. So for me, although I was in marketing communications, I always thought about my role as, as an educator as well. You know, I am the person, I'm the face of this organization. I have an opportunity to tell folks about how, how to go about international education or international volunteering or however you want to, to look at it. And so, yeah, so I was there for a very long time and that shaped a lot of my thinking around how to approach communities and how change actually happens around the world and how important it is to hear from the people who are doing this kind of work day in and day out.
0: I think it's um, it's a big problem to mm-hmm. go and, you know, I mean, this is colonialism, this exactly. is white saviorism, right? Like this is literally how, um, you know, I mean, hell, you're from the Philippines, right? Like my people are from Korea, like we're both products of yeah. uh you know shiploads of Americans coming in saying or Spaniards in your case saying yeah. we're better than you and you guys don't know you know and it's still perpetuated today, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there's some good, right? Like uh, reallocation of wealth globally and you know taking donations from well-to-do people here and you know spreading it to people who need it. Um but you know how many social media posts of our I think, well intentioned church friends who ask for donations (laughs) to go on missions every summer only to see pictures on social media of like, you know, like some Instagram perfectly photoshopped picture surrounded by a bunch of kids in an orphanage saying, Ooh, I'm doing. And it's like, what the hell, right? Like, one, we need to stop that because, like, what does that actually achieve? Um, But two, also, you know, being Asian in that mix also makes us adjacently complicit. Mm -hmm. in the fact that we can get away with that right because Mm -hmm. we are no longer quote-unquote third world country people um i can imagine you know if if this was uh i don't know 50 years ago even right like philippines korea a lot of different asian countries look very different right like um and we had the other impact for our friends from you know vietnam and cambodia and stuff like they didn't need to go and save them. They came here to be saved, quote unquote. Right. And so, you know, folks took them in and as refugees. And so I, I, it's, it's such a paradigm shifting and perspective bursting experience that I think you had um, to be able to really appreciate the fact that um, everybody's voice deserves to be heard, particularly Uh, Not from the person helping, but from the person who needs to help, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's often another, you know, parallel is, you know, uh, we've had Sarah Park Dolan on the show and she's an academic and a researcher that studies and writes a lot about Korean adoptees who were adopted by, you know, generally white American families. And much of the books that are written about the Korean American transnational, transracial adoptee experience is not written by them, but written by their parents, Right. and people who are in the system. And it's like, well, now you're just telling me how I should have felt. Now you're literally telling the world like, oh, I think my kids had a good time. Like, well, did you ask the kid? Yeah. Like, you know? Oh, yeah. um, and and so finally we're getting to a place where like, you know, um, people are feeling empowered to voice their own story and um, feeling that the risk that they might take quote unquote burning relationships or
1: mm-hmm. seeming
0: ungrateful to the person who, you know, raised you is, is okay. Because at the end of the day, what is more important than your own mental health and what is more important than your own, uh, storytelling? Um, and and so you started living hyphen while you were still doing that as a profession. Um, yeah. what, what was there a particular point where you just like, this is it like a light bulb moment or how, how did it go from, you know, uh, your lifelong passion of writing and, you know, fighting for people, giving people's giving people who need a voice to actually, putting the proverbial pen to paper and saying, you know, let's publish something.
1: Yeah. So I guess, as I mentioned, so much of my writing has always my personal writing, at least not my work writing, but my personal writing has centered around my identity as a Filipino Canadian. And it's just something that's really important to me expressing and navigating, you know, that push and pull, Um, But it was actually, I I can identify like the light bulb moment for me when I wanted to create Living Hyphen. Um, I am also part of what's called the Feminist Art Collective here Hmm. in Toronto. So again, really passionate about social justice issues. Um, And while I was working with Operation Groundswell, I was also doing some volunteer work as an organizer for the Feminist Art Collective. And every few years we host um, a feminist art conference that brings activists and academics and artists together to explore feminist issues, intersectional feminist issues. And one year in 2015, I was helping to organize this one panel that was all about all about uh, writers or publishers of color, and what their experiences have been in the publishing industry. And it was a panel again of writers of color, and they were all sharing their experiences and a lot of the obstacles that they had had to go through um, in publishing or in writing their work. And I distinctly just remember listening and kind of disbelief maybe now it shouldn't be such disbelief but I was younger then too Um, and I distinctly remember there was this one woman who she's a a Japanese Canadian novelist and she was born in Canada but similar to me had this you know deep-rooted lifelong feeling of push and pull between Japan and Canada and her novel centered around that experience and so she wrote her novel, she submitted it to her editor or her publisher, and then she received um, feedback from the editor on her manuscript. And that editor told her basically that her story wasn't Japanese enough. Aye. <laughs> and she was just like, What does that even mean when I myself am Japanese and this is my experience? And again, all of those other writers of color sharing very similar experiences. And it was a light bulb moment for me thinking that, oh, my God, so much of my writing centers around my identity as a Filipina-Canadian is there going to be someone in this editorial position one day if I choose to write my story who tells me that my story isn't Filipino enough, isn't Canadian enough, isn't valid, you know, and that thought just really jolted me and really scared me. And I decided that I need to do this on my own. You know, I need to be the one to create the space for myself and for other people. And I can't wait for some predominantly probably white editor <laughs> to let me in. You know, I need. I always say this: we need to build our own houses. And yes. it actually took me. So that was twenty fifteen, but it took me two years to actually put everything everything together. Two or three years, really. And the reason for that was. For those two years, well, life was happening, of course. But also, there was a lot of doubt. And I kept asking around, are there already publications that exist like this? Can you hear the background?
0: Yes. That, it's it's actually fitting. No, the alarm bells are sounding. And the oh. No, <laughs> right? No, I, I want to I just take a pause real quick, right? Because we get asked... And we ask ourselves that very dumb question of this theory of scarcity, right? This yes. limited theory of.
1: Exactly. If,
0: if if I look, I there's so much to unpack just right here, right? Like number one, no, there's never enough anything of anything, right? So the moment you ask that you lose, right? Yeah. So if you're out there and you're doing your market research or you're just like thinking of reasons to quit, right? Like giving yeah. yourself excuses. Um And if you're listening to this and you want to create an Asian American podcast, do it. Mm -hmm. I will help you. I will help you create it, right? I will guest on it for you. I will market (laughs) it for you, right? Because the goal isn't to have me dominate or have anybody dominate. I want to be such a minuscule impact on the greater pie that we inspire to create because, I'm sorry, are we asking every white person who's writing a book saying, hey, aren't there enough books by you people? Hell no, right? And have you ever gone to a bookstore? you know, physical bookstore and you go down the aisles and you go and, and just, I know a lot of the times when we go to bookstores, we're just like, you know, targeted. We're looking for this type of book, but just go there and look. Mm -hmm. There are tens of thousands of books written across various topics by tens of thousands of untalented average people whose (laughs) only difference is that they deserved, they thought that they deserved their voice to be heard. And Sure go through the process, right? Like, you know, I can't tell you how, for how many, about two years myself, like I'm going to start a podcast and it's always in the future tense. I'm going to, I'm going to. And at some point your friends are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Like you always say these big, big ass things. I'm like, cool. But then what? Right. Like the moment you do it, it feels empowering Hmm. and and there's no, but then when you do it, then you're like, wait a minute, why did not I do this any sooner? But that's also something you gotta get out of your head. Yeah. Because only through that process that you took yourself through in the self-doubt and like the the all these questioning, mm-hmm. like that built you into the exact person you are for this to be the way it is, right? Like, um, and, and so yeah, I, I wanna thank the sirens for, you know, giving giving us a pause think about it because and then share with us a little bit sort of the things that you learned during those two years that makes you a better writer and an editor and a producer of living hyphen
1: you know it's funny that you mentioned all that you just mentioned because i spoke to somebody you know i was asking i was doing my own research i was asking so many people does this exist if so i'm not going to touch this because i just (laughs) want to support that you know poc or whoever is doing this work already why compete why start my own thing and until this person sat down with me and she said justine so what if there's already a magazine that exists like this? How many, I just will never forget it. She told me how many magazines exist that caters to white women's fitness, health, and beauty, and no one is ever telling them to stop making those, you know? And that was, again, a light bulb moment for me. And when she told me that, I was like, I got to do this. And it just Mm -hmm. opened up so much for me. And exactly what you were saying about if, if you are an Asian American, an Asian Canadian, whatever, who wants to start your own podcast, do it. That's has been my feeling too, that I had been operating under this, this idea of scarcity, you know, that we have been fed all of our lives that we have fallen into. And I completely bought into it clearly. And But now that I've produced this magazine, I realize that there's just not enough spaces that exist for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And, you know, I can't publish everyone, you know? Mm -hmm. That's just a fact. Like, I just can't. I've gotten... I guess this is a key learning, actually. So I, um, in 2017, August of 2017, put out a call for submissions for poetry, illustrations, essays, short stories all sorts of different art forms exploring this, this theme of living in between cultures. And to be honest, I thought that, I thought that we'd receive maybe 15, 20 um, stories probably from my close friends and we'd make a really great zine and it would be this awesome thing that I did. And then, you know, Submission deadline rolls around and I got over 200 submissions. Wow. Yeah. From artists and writers from all across Canada, not just in Toronto. And it just completely surprised me. Did not expect that kind of response. And for me, it just highlighted that people are hungry. One for these stories to be shared or to, you know, yeah for these stories to be shared but also hungry to tell their stories right you know and so yeah that was a really big eye-opener for me and what i meant to say was that you know we had over 200 submissions it's a print publication obviously i can't print all of them but i feel so strongly that these stories are so important and how i wish that i could filter the other uh, entries or the other stories to other publications that it might be a fit for. But right now, there there's definitely more that has popped up in the last few years, but it's still not enough, you know, and how wonderful would it be for me to be able to provide these resources to these artists and writers and say, hey, it's not a fit here, but here's another place that you could potentially submit your work to. You know, we just need to keep creating these spaces for us to share these stories
0: 100 percent and i think it's because you, you mentioned you know outside forces that led us to believe that we weren't allowed to right that we mm-hmm. always had to seek permission and um it's important to point out that a lot of that came from within our own communities within our own families even yeah right um keep your head down work hard don't rock the boat you know um assimilate all these things that just led us to believe that we weren't allowed to right like yeah. You know, that's not that's not for people like us is something that a lot of us heard growing up, right? Exactly. Or um, we just don't see it, right? And I mm-hmm. think, you know, power to our parents for coming to a brand new country and like dealing with shit that we probably can't deal with now, right? Can you imagine moving now <laughs> no. in, in our thirties <laughs> to like brand new country, brand like with kids in tow? Like yeah. um, it's insane. And 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 so, you know, if if you're listening to Justine and, and me right now and you have an idea, um, do it. And do it because you deserve it. Do it because your stories matter. Um, And if I happen to be the first person and Justine happens to be the first person to tell you that your stories are worth it, then all the time and hours that her and I have, she and I have collectively spent producing our own things and sharing this conversation is all worth it. Um, and, And don't tell anybody, don't let anybody else tell you that your story doesn't matter. Um, you know, some stories are more in than others. Fine. Right. Some stories sell better copies. Fine. But that doesn't take away from the fact that your, your story matters. Right. And, um, and if you are crazy like we are and you take it a step further and you want to spend even more time and more energy and more late nights, creating a platform <laughs> to bring others along, as Justine mentioned to build a goddamn new house, to then be able to invite other people to speak on your own platform do it um but don't fool yourself it's it's a lot of hard work mm-hmm. um Justine's been at it for 3 years this is episode 66 it's literally uh the most challenging yet rewarding thing i've done and it's easy to quit um because you know it's hard work um so i encourage everybody to do it but also commit yourself uh pick a number, pick a big number like a hundred episodes or you know ten ten issues or twenty issues or whatever it is and and you know charge through it um you know i I love having everybody on the show, but I especially love having fellow creators and fellow platform providers on the show because I think we were inspired by somebody else, whether positively or negatively uh to create platforms that we wish we had when we were younger and uh, I have a three and a one-year-old, you know, this is personal for me, right? They're literally the reason why I do this because I want them to listen to my voice and uncles and aunties voices and go, Oh, I can create a magazine, right? Like, cause who's, who's the world is going to tell them that they can't. And, and, and we should, you know, at least encourage the best of our ability. Um, especially in times of COVID when there seems to be so hope, so much hopelessness and lack of opportunity, um, that the media is sharing with us. Um, so I, I know we went down a, a different pivot thanks to the sirens, um, <laughs> but but I thought that was uh, something important. that was so so infre- yes important, necessary, and refreshing uh, to hear that from you as well. That um, and you know when you build that house of yours, you got to be really really careful on who you let in, right? Because you know you you built your house and your platform for a reason to give voices an opportunity for people to share their stories who otherwise don't get to. Um, so tell me about the opportunity or, so you got your 200 subs. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you 10% that? I don't like, know.
1: How, <laughs> like, yeah, that was, it's being an editor, being the decision maker on this project is one of the, the hardest jobs I think I've ever ever had um you know we yeah that was 200 submissions for the first issue our deadline has recently passed for our second issue which is uh the theme is across generations and we got over 600 submissions wow. this time around wow 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 yeah so you can imagine how difficult that has been for a number of reasons um I don't even know where to start with how I do this, but I'll tell you a couple of things that are on my mind or ha- that have been on my mind. Um, there's a real power in being in this position, you know, of having the power to choose whose stories get told is something that I don't take lightly and one that I problematize and have existential crises over <laughs> on a near daily basis. But seriously, it's, you know, there are so many stories that I've read that are so beautiful, so important. And I keep coming back to this question of who am I and who is anybody to say that that story does not deserve to be published, does not deserve a wider audience. You know, I will never have the answer to that question, I don't think. You know, it's so, it feels so arbitrary. I feel so, uh, it feels so subjective. Is. Yeah. And but then- the, market,
0: I, the audience is the market yeah right mm-hmm. and if if look if and if one person cries and it changes their life yeah. then it's worth is it i mean i i will make the argument that it is worth it right yeah but then it's it's hard and there's no like you said um you know how do you just it's it's hard yeah it and, is and really you hard. and you can't and it's it's an art and an emotion and it's not you know you can't you know filter it through some ai algorithm and be like you know best grammatically written paper no that's bullshit right like it's content that matters in the context so you you got a tough job how how do you like do you have other folks that help you pare it down like do you literally just you know go to a cabin somewhere and and read all 600 essays and like just start to yes or no pile like pretty much what i've been doing (laughs) yeah
1: yeah, I mean uh, the quarantine has certainly helped create the time and the space for me to hunker down and do that. Um, so yeah, for sure. And one thing that I should share is that this project is actually a project um, between largely between my mom and me. Wow. <laughs> so she's our publisher. she is our financier person. Uh, She's my (laughs) financial backer. um, And she has also played a huge role in the editorial process. And it's honestly been one of the most beautiful experiences of my life to be able to do this with my mom. Yeah, especially just that intergenerational difference, I guess, you know, for both of us, we've been able to see things in completely different lights, you know, she is She's a woman who moved from the Philippines to Canada when she was in her 30s and has just a vastly different life experience to mine. And we've just, we've just learned a lot about each other and about, yeah, about each other, about our life experiences through this project. Um, so it's primarily the two of us who have been working on the editorial piece of all of this. Mm um, yeah. And, and it has largely just been me hunkering down, um, and going through each submission and grading or rating them one to 10, um, and then dwindling it down from there. And at the same time, trying to create, um, I guess like mini themes within this issue. So in our first issue, our inaugural issue, the theme was entrances and exits and each, um, we had four chapters that basically take you took you through, uh, I guess, like an emotional journey of what the experience is like for a hyphenated Canadian. So from longing to your longing for your homeland to not conforming or not conforming to your new land that you happen to be on, from reconciling the differences between these two places, and then finally to bridging the two the two cultures, the two places, the two peoples that you might be a part of, or multiple, I shouldn't just say two. Um, Yeah, so those are the, I guess, considerations that have been going through my mind during this editorial process.
0: What is the ultimate goal for you? What is the dream result if there is a finite point for living hyphen?
1: Oh... That's a big question. <laughs> I just want, one, I want Living Hyphen to be the premier publication for Black, Indigenous and people of color for our voices. Um, but more than that, I really want us to play a huge and significant part in shaping The Canadian arts and literature space in making it a much more diverse and much more inclusive space. Um, We started as a magazine you know and I mentioned earlier in this podcast that we've become a community and that's not just lip service it really has become that you know one of I guess another key very very key learning that I have gathered during this entire experience is that While we got 200, 600 submissions, you know, there are so many other Black, Indigenous and people of color who aren't even ready to tell their stories yet, you know, who, I mean, like we've talked about, we have been told from day one that We should be quiet, that our stories don't really matter, that our stories are not Canadian enough or American enough or Filipino enough or Korean enough. And we've been told all of these things of what we're not and what we're not enough of. And I really want Living Hyphen to break that whole idea apart. And so, you know, we started as a magazine, but we've actually transitioned into creating cultural programming for... Mm -hmm a lot of artists and writers here in Canada. So we've been hosting um, open open mic nights, storytelling nights, but most importantly, we've actually been hosting a ton of writing workshops. Initially, they were all in person. Uh, since June, we've pivoted to virtual, which has actually been very... It, it's been a really great experience because... Previously, I was you know, confined geographically, like by geography to be in right. Toronto, but suddenly now I'm getting writing workshop participants from New Brunswick, from Vancouver, British Columbia, to Calgary and Alberta, and all of these different places all across Canada. And it's just shown me how important it is, not just for representation, not just to have representation, but to actually provide the supports that lead to that representation. You know, again, like there's so many people who just aren't ready to tell their stories, who haven't been equipped with maybe the skills, but more importantly, the confidence to tell their stories. And I want to also be in that part of the funnel, you know, of cultivating these diverse voices and actually playing a part in in developing their voices and cultivating that confidence and making them feel compelled to tell their stories. You know, 600 is a great number, but I want more.
0: (laughs) Justine, I I think you're a a true badass in this sense, right? Because you're, you're looking, you're, you're not looking at it's a big enough of a deal that 600 people um, found their voice maybe had something pre-written or right. is confident enough in their writing ability to want to come and share it. Um, my parallel is people fill out the form that you did to come and say, I want to you know, volunteer my time. How many hundreds mm-hmm. either have a kick-ass story that they don't want to share or nobody's encouraged them to share, right? This opt-in process that you and I and so many other platform people participate in is functionally easy for us but you know it begs the larger question of like this is a uh you know a sample size bias right if we only pick from the people who volunteer is that representative or then the bigger question perhaps is like what is our real responsibility in seeking out every story um because we also you know this is you know not a uh you know it is a labor of love but it also needs to fund itself to continue to be to be able to continue what we do right and so Mm -hmm. that's the second part that i want to commend you on you know publicly here on the show is that you've built an actual business around it this is while it is a business of love and labor um you charge what i consider to be a very fair price for not just your book but for your courses and your classes and for things that people get value out of right um three things that i think people undervalue because that's what we've been conditioned cultural stuff religious stuff social stuff, right? Like everything is under this context of like labor of love, right? Like everything's a volunteer thing. And part of, I think what's or discouraged a lot of cultural things from happening is that we don't have enough test cases or business cases out there to show that it is commercially viable, right? right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I always point to somebody like Tyler Perry and Oprah, they built billion dollar empires and they were not apologetic about who their audience was. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, so let's do one of those within our community to say like, you know, it'd be cool if it was me, but it doesn't, it'd be cool if it was you, but it doesn't have to be like, let's get, let's support everybody that we can and the people that are actually doing good work. Right. Um, And like, I don't, so we're recording this on Wednesday and it's going to go out on Friday. Like, I have told myself and told very many people and it might be weird hearing it if it doesn't happen. But like tomorrow I'm supposed to send out an email to all of our former guests, my friends, my supporters and saying like, look, you know, I haven't asked for a single thing since I've started this, but like I need your support to make this work going forward um, to be able to free up some of my other time. And like we actually have expenses related to the production of this show. So, you know, if you'd support me through a Patreon, like, here's some things that I can offer you that are in addition to the free podcast. Um, like that's been on the back of my mind for like a month, right? Like, and I'm sharing it explicitly. So like, if it's not up by Friday, I hope some of you are like, <laughs> wait a minute, like you're supposed to have done this, right? Like I'm, I'm committing to it. Right. Um, but I think that's the other part that I think we're also as creators and as cultural creators of cultural content uh, we're not necessarily so blunt and open about at times, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of time that it requires, the amount of labor and our friends help and our community's help and actual investment of dollars that go into creating something. Um, and so, you know, this is not like, you know, um, anything else but to openly talk about how difficult creating something like this is where, you know, we're not funded by large publication houses, Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And not yet, at least, you know, investors aren't lighting up to support magazines and podcasts of, you know, uh, Asian American or, you know, uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color storytelling initiatives. Maybe they are and maybe we don't know that, you know, we haven't found them yet. But, you know, I I hope we get to a point where, um, you know, I am grateful for every single listener, um, as I'm sure you're for every single person that buys it and that likes an Instagram post and all that. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, these are some of the realities that I think we, we both face. Um, so if you're listening and my Patreon's not up by the time you listen to this, uh, send me a message, uh, <laughs> feel free to, feel free to pressure me or to encourage me rather uh, to, to, to Do move that. forward with it. Or if you don't think it's a good idea, you can also tell me. Um, but it's been, you know, it's been, this the conversation has actually really been one of the more fun fun ones I've had. Um, certainly not as emotional as some of the other ones I've had on the show, um, but it's cool. What, what is the, something that you've? What is the biggest lesson that you've learned personally as Justine, as you've gone through this process of providing a, a platform, and then the ability, um, and equally burden and gift of this opportunity to share other people's story.
1: the biggest lesson for me that i want to impart to to everyone what i do in every living hyphen event and every writing workshop that i host it's that your story matters and your story matters and it needs to be heard whether you do it through you know your instagram whether it's through a podcast whether through a publication whatever the means is your story matters and I just want to encourage more and more people to feel comfortable, to feel compelled and confident to share their story. And I guess, in addition to that, it's what I said that who gets to tell our stories is also really important, you know, and that we often think of journalists or publishers and editors and podcasters to be this quote unquote elite group of people who are the gatekeepers to these stories. Yeah. But they shouldn't be. And we should all feel compelled tell our stories regardless of those gatekeepers for us to do it ourselves if we have to do it to build your own damn house if you have to do it you know so i think that for me has been the biggest lesson and there isn't a single story that hasn't touched me i know that sounds maybe cheesy or cliche or whatnot (laughs) but i'm serious there's not a single story that hasn't touched me because it's personal, and I feel honored and humbled every day that I get to read these stories to know that these people feel safe and that they feel comfortable to share something so vulnerable with me and with the Living Hyphen community.
0: I think you bring up such wonderful points, Justine. And, and one thing that I do want to you know, touch upon too is in this digital world that we live in, um, and, and my content distribution model is digital, um, and, and your you can track by sales right like mm-hmm. um, data 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 is, is something that we, we live in and that it's just thrown at us all the time it's really really easy to focus on vanity metrics to judge our success um, but when it comes to particularly storytelling stuff and giving people who have never shared their story the ability to either share their story for the first time or to even utter a word. Um, like one is the actual number that you're seeking to get, right? Like if your story, if that person's story moves one person, yeah. Um, look, we can compare ourselves ad nauseum to you know uh, other people, other media properties that have 10X, 100X the times of followers and listeners and whatever. Um, but we get humbled so often, mm-hmm. so often uh, by the people who tell us like your stuff helped me so much and it's really the folk. It should really be the focus of why we do what we do. Um, yes, the commerce matters because it funds the thing. Yes. Getting it out there and the amplification matters because only through that will it might, will it, ch- uh, has a chance to reach that one person for whom this is life changing. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, it's really that like write for an audience of one and going off of what I encourage people to do earlier in starting whatever it is in the back of your mind, you will change at least one person's life when you decide to produce and create something. And that person is you because my life has fundamentally changed because of this. I know yours has, um, you know, it's given you an opportunity to spread your message and bring others along for the ride. Um, and, and so I, I think that's really, really wonderful. Um, so let's talk briefly. I don't want to belabor this particular point because it wasn't the happiest story to share, but oh, yeah. <laughs> um but I do think but I do think it's important uh yeah. given like I mean, they could have messed with like anybody else, but like you with the platform and that. It, it, so 2020 has been a hell of a year. Um, and I and I was teasing earlier that things in Canada are, are quite better from uh, a racism perspective than we might feel in America. But um, share with us briefly what happened to you last week and, and some of the processing that you've done ever since then.
1: Yeah. So last week or two weekends ago now, um, I was around Toronto I was sitting in a park I was reading. I was reading my book and this is a park I frequent pretty often. There're always you know, it's a park. Anyway, uh, and a woman came up to me uh, to tell me that I was on private property. And I said, "Okay, thank you." Kind of brushed it off because again, I was in a park I frequented often. There are always people here. I decided just not to move and when I refused to move after a while, she told me that she was going to call the police on me because I was trespassing. Mm. I was on private property and that surprised me. (laughs) And I said, okay, but aren't you on the private property with me? So what does that mean? And she said, well, I'm a teacher. To which I said, does that mean you're allowed to trespass? Is that how this works? And at that point she said, There are signs everywhere that say no trespassing. Can't you read English? Go back home to China. And it was one of those things that I feel like I've been hearing a lot of online, especially as COVID has hit. But I've never, ever actually experienced anything overtly racist like that before in my life. Mm. Um, So it really shocked me. And it took me a second to react. But I said, wow, thank you so much for that racist remark and she sweared back at me and left the premises and she said a bunch of other things but i honestly it happened so fast it's all a blur to me and i just remember shouting back saying we'll call the police then and she left and i i was just sitting there feeling really shook (laughs) to be honest from the whole experience i started questioning my own right to be there i started questioning like shit am i on private property am i not allowed to be here but I didn't want to leave because I didn't want her to know that I was scared. I didn't want to leave because I knew I was within my rights. I didn't want to leave because I just didn't think I should. So I started recording myself and giving video testimony on like what just happened while it was still fresh in my head. Um, And then I noticed in the corner of my eye that she had come back and there was a fence between us and she was just pacing back and forth, back and forth, watching me literally she, if you see the video she looks like she's just prowling and stalking me so i flipped the camera to her and she's just walking back and forth and at some point she yells out all chinese people should go to jail
0: and oh, good.
1: yeah thanks <laughs> and i was just i got pissed off at that point and i started popping off because she told me she was a teacher and that was a mistake on her part because i was just infuriated to know that there is somebody who holds this position of power to teach young people and they harbor such violently racist beliefs. And so, you know, this video is online, it's made its rounds and you can hear me yelling at her saying, can you say that again? Say it louder. Tell me what you think about Chinese people. Are you actually a teacher? And then she walks away. Um, So this uh, I posted on my social and It made its rounds (laughs) and it's been viewed uh, quite a bit. Some would say it went viral. (laughs) Um, And I reached out to a bunch of different media um, outlets to get the story out. I, the police (laughs) they're
0: coming for you they're coming for you
1: (laughs) and i really wanted to identify this woman that was one of my primary motives for posting Mm. it online and i felt like i had a responsibility given also the fact that i'm the founder of living hyphen i hold this community that is all about our experiences living in between cultures and so I did that, I posted on social, I reached out to local media to get the story out, I filed a formal complaint with the Ontario College of Teachers, reached out to a number of our school boards to find out if this woman is actually a teacher, because again, I just feel so strongly that this person should not be able to teach if they are, if they could feel so empowered to say something like that out loud to somebody who's reading in a park, like, what the hell? Um, yeah, so that's what happened. (laughs) So Canada is, I always say this, you know, we often compare ourselves to the States and I'll say for sure, minus this encounter, that our racism is not as loud, is not our, as explicit maybe as the racism that we are seeing now and for a long time in America, but it's definitely there, and mm. what I find here in Canada is actually quieter, which makes it even more dangerous it's It's so much subtler, it almost feels like so much more sophisticated in the ways in which our racism works here that that part is the the danger i think
0: i mean maybe it's because stereotypically you're all supposed to be nicer right so exactly even the racism is nicer um <laughs> Well, I'm sorry you had to get go through that, um, but I think I jokingly said like they messed with the wrong person, but I think they did because um, you have a platform. Mm-hmm. You're not shy away from it, right? And I think um, when we shy away from that and we suppress it and we keep our head down and we just mind their own business, which is, again, a lot of what our parents told us to do with good intention.
1: Mm-hmm. Survival. Um, they win
0: correct but they win right um they want us to be quiet they want they don't want us to go vote they don't want us to you know call the news because they think they can get away with it which is the audacity of privilege right like i can say whatever the hell i want to you in public and i'm going to face no consequences and i've done this enough to have conditioned myself to give myself the disillusionment of that i think i can which is crazy right we're living in the internet age like you can't get away with anything but um shockingly or perhaps not like we see it in the streets we see it on facebook we see it even on like professional places like linkedin where people are just like i'm a racist come i you know like but they feel so empowered and fearless about what the world or other people are going to do to them um but i do think as, as unfortunate as that experience was for you, super proud and super empowered and impressed by the way that you've handled it to uh, you know, use it for good, mm-hmm. use it to bring light on issues that um, still many people in our community don't think that this stuff is real, yeah. um, both COVID and racism. So uh, I think it's good. Uh, trying to make, you know, something really positive out of a really negative experience Mm -hmm. um, to encourage people to say like, hey, if it can happen to me, right, like I've committed my actual life and my time and our, our, you know, like our family and Mm -hmm. our everything to elevating these people's voices and like that's, if that's, and you are better prepared to respond to that, Mm
1: -hmm. right? Mm -hmm.
0: Like what if that shit was to your mom or, my mom right like yeah. people don't know how to respond you know like that lady the the grandma in chinatown or in in new york right the 89 yeah. year old yeah. like she literally said i didn't want to bother my kids so i wasn't going to tell anybody about it yeah how many of our parents have dealt with shit that they are not telling us because Absolutely. shame and they don't want to you know burden us with it and it's so painful but it goes really back to share your damn stories yeah. right and then share your families and your families and your parents' stories too, because um, they're not going to do it without our encouragement. And And
1: Exactly. And we need to keep modeling this kind of response to show other people, you know, that we do have to speak up because if the standard has always been to be quiet... Which I understand exactly, like it's a survival tactic, you know. But yeah. if we keep doing that, if we don't have examples of other alternatives of how to act in these situations, right. then we won't.
0: I 100% agree. I think it's very complex, it's very deep. Um, and what outcome needs to happen for more of us? to feel empowered to share because um, there was a point I'm sure in your processing of it as it was happening is, do I share it, right? Do I document it
1: Yeah.
0: or, you know, she's crazy and I'm just going to let it go and move on with my life. Um, and it's almost a split second decision, but, you know, it's not a logical one in which you literally get to weigh out the pros and the cons of, you know, pressing that red button. Um, but all in all, I mean, it is, it, it is what it is. Um, it happened and we have to, I think, use it as, as painful as it may have been. Um, you use it as a catalyst for us to do more good with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. you know, it's, and, and I think it, it, it's really empowering, um, for, for you to come here and then to have, you know, uh, major self uh, vulnerable and uh, open mm-hmm. to sharing these stories, this particular story, um, far and wide, um, and I, I noticed that yesterday you shared something on Instagram too, where people made signs for you saying "Miss you." It's okay to be here. Stay here. Yeah. As, you know, however the hell you want. So, um, you know, know that there's more good people in the world than people. You know, crappy people like her, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's you know that the hope of what candidate can be, uh, the hope of what America is supposed to be, and, and the fact that we, in technicality, uh, have the power to vote people in and create policy and laws that uh, can bring us to that place a little bit closer, a little bit sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been um, one of the most refreshing conversations and fun conversations I've had, um, except for the last five minutes. Um, <laughs> about, you know, just creating platforms and giving ourselves permission, not only to create for ourselves, but then to give a platform from other people to, uh, share their stories on our own, um, in our own houses and our own stages. Um, you know, as you mentioned earlier, uh, every story matters. You want to publish every story. And, and so, you know, same thing here, right. As, as I interview different people and, Um, you know, there's no prerequisite to come on the show. It's like, if you got a good show, um, if you got a good story, like, I'd love to hear it. Um, Unfortunately, we don't get to, you know, talk to everybody, which is the same problem that you have. And so, Mm -hmm. um, but all in all, I, I, you know, um, it's, I I hope that we've inspired at least one person uh, to create something. And if that something actually involves the invitation and the growing of the pie for us to even share, basically exponentially growing the opportunities for people to share. um, Please do. And if if this conversation has inspired you to do so, uh, please do reach out to us individually um, and we will do what we can to try to encourage you and to help you and to connect you with the people um, who've made it easier uh, for us to do what we do, because none of this happens alone. None of this happens by itself. Um, And, In typical form, I I guess in sort of typical form, we want to close out the show with a Dear Asian Americans letter. Um, And so for you, being one of our very esteemed Canadian guests, um, I will switch it up just a little bit. Um, But share with the audience some things that you've learned, um, some thoughts and some perspectives that you want to uh, share out with our audiences. Perhaps it is a letter to a younger version of Justine somewhere in the universe um, that you wish you may have heard. 5, 10, 20 years ago. So if you could help us finish out the show and Justine, uh, finish the letter. Dear Asian Canadians.
1: Build your own damn houses. Tell your stories. Don't wait for anyone to let you in.
0: And invite us. (laughs) Thank you, Justine. No, this is, you know, look, I I think we've, uh, I've had the great fortune of meeting so many cool people. Um, you have to. And as, as crappy as 2020 has been, um, and I led the intro with 2020 was supposed to be a good year for us. And it seems like in the moment uh, with COVID and with racism that it's it's uh, you know, brought us down. But we're resilient. We figure out a way. Um, we stand on the backs of our ancestors who've been through enslavement of concentration camps, of war, of occupation. And then here we are in our new home, trying to build a new house and an empire for our descendants to be proud of. And so I am really empowered and inspired by so many fellow people who are starting their own podcasts, starting their own magazines. Um, Whatever it is, just do it. Um, It's scary as hell. And you're not going to, not everybody's going to hit a home run the first time or every time. Um, But, Uh, know that many days we are scared to know that many days we don't have all the motivation to continue to do what we do Um, and really uh, invite us invite other people you never know um, whose life you're going to impact so uh, you can look for Justine on the internet at Justine Abigail um, across many of the platforms you can find living hyphen at living hyphen dot c a and for us Americans that's Canada's proprietary domain name. So it's living-ca, not .com, at living- on Instagram. Um, her books are $30 Canadian. I have no idea what that means in US dollars, but it, she will ship it to us here in the States for us Americans who want to get involved. There are some bookstores here stateside that will sell it, um, support her work, um, attend the class. Um, again, her classes are virtual, so you can attend from anywhere in the world um, to learn, but also to support what she's doing. Um, cause I think it's beautiful. And I think, uh, written expression is more intentional than perhaps more thought out than speaking. Um, and, and so I, I do think that the written medium is, is so powerful. Um, thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you've created. Um, and really thank you for coming on and sharing a little bit of Justine's world with us today.
1: Thank you. It has been such a pleasure even to learn about you in, in a snapshot, Jerry, it was wonderful
0: nobody well a lot of people are wondering uh we've been through like 66 episodes and i don't answer any questions on the show <laughs> so uh maybe one day I'll, someone I'll needs to interview you
1: here.
0: yeah we'll, we'll wait for a fun day to do that but, <laughs> um, until then uh look forward to having more fun and exciting guests to share our unique yet unifying asian american stories here on the show and um thank you everybody and um hopefully the patreon link is up so Go to Patreon and help us out. Um, I love you guys and thank you. That was really fun. Thank you, Justine, for uh, coming on the show. Really proud of the work that you're doing at Living Hyphen. Subscribe to her channels. And I want to do something fun. If you are the first person to uh, join us as a patron at patreon.com slash Dear Asian Americans, even at the $5 level, the next person to do so and shoot me a message, um, I will get to you a copy of the latest uh, Living-Magazine to you or to wherever you may be um, in Canada or in the States. Uh, we always want to be supporting other creators and our guests and their projects and their businesses here on the show. Share this episode out with somebody who might want to hear it. Um, tag us at the Asian Americans wherever you can on Instagram, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. And send us a note. Uh, Our DM box is always open. Or you can send me a note or an email directly at hello at Americans.com And we'd be happy to engage. Again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, this show is being released on um, 88 days until the election. And let's do what we can to make sure that America and beyond is as diverse, equitable, and as inclusive as we can make it. Here from Los Angeles, uh, this has been your host, Jerry Wan. And I want to thank you for listening again and wishing you health, safety, and happiness, wherever you may be. Thanks for tuning in to The Asian Americans, and I'll see you on Tuesday for episode 67. Thank you.